Well, we're talking about our core convictions, a subject that's not only right at this particular time in each of our lives and in our denomination, but that is right at any time in our life, core convictions. We've talked about the first one, which is God is with us, the second one, which is Jesus is Lord, and today I want to talk about a third conviction, and that conviction is the Bible rules. The Bible rules. Uh, in Wesley's general rules to the societies, John Wesley, uh, uh, to those who, who, who were meeting uh, at that time, in those general rules, it's still in our Book of Discipline as United Methodists on page 78, if you want to look it up sometime. Uh, our general rules of our societies, he's talked about uh, doing no harm and, and doing good and attending to the ordinances of the church, the life of the church, being involved in the life of the church. These are the general rules of our society. And he concludes with this statement, all of which we are taught by God to observe, even in his written word, which is the only rule and the sufficient rule, both of our faith and our practice. So I, I didn't get that statement from a, a junior high kid in the hall. The Bible rules. <laughs> Those are actually the words of uh, the founder of uh, the Methodist version of Christianity, John Wesley. He went on to say things like this. Uh, to candid, reasonable men, I am not afraid to lay open what have been the most inward, uh, my inmost thoughts of heart. I have thought I am a creature of day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. And I think at that moment, he, he held it up. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unus libri, a man of one book. But the Christian rule of right and wrong is the word of God. The writings of the Old and the New Testament, all that the prophets and the holy men of, of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, all that scripture which was given by inspiration of God and which is indeed profitable for doctrine or teaching the whole will of God, for reproof of what is contrary thereto or for correction of error, uh, for instruction or training us up in righteousness. This is a lantern unto a Christian's feet, a light unto his paths. This alone he receives as his rule of right or wrong, of whatever is really good or evil. He esteems nothing good but what is here enjoined. Either directly or by plain consequence, he accounts nothing evil but what is here forbidden, either in terms or by undeniable inference. Whatever the Scripture neither forbids nor conjoins, Either directly or by plain consequence, he believes to be of an indifferent nature, to be in itself neither good nor evil, this being the whole and sole outward rule whereby his conscience is to be directed in all things. I am distressed, Wesley wrote. I know not what to do. I see what I might have done once. I might have said, preemptively or expressively, here I am, I and my Bible, I will not, I dare not vary from this book. Either in great things or small, I have no power to dispense with one jot or tittle what is contained therein. I am determined to be a Bible Christian, not almost, but altogether, who will meet me, who will meet me on this ground. Join me on this, or not at all. Words from the 
spring well of, uh, of our Methodist heritage. Scriptural authority. John Wesley honored it. Indeed, the Bible itself teaches us how to think about the Scriptures. If you turn to, uh, I never know if it's 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. There's a lot of good 3.16s in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, I want to read it and get it exactly right. 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. All of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I wish I had the whole sermon to just unpack that that one phrase. But, but, But the Scripture, it says, is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. For te- now, let's unpack that. Don't let that just pass you by as a bunch of religious talk, okay? Let's talk practically what that means. The Bible is good, first of all, for teaching, okay? It points in the way to go, tells us which way to aim. This is the way, walk in it, right? So, so it teaches us the way. But should we wander off from the way, the Word also confronts us with reproof. The Word says, no, not this way, Right? But the word also corrects and says, this is the way back to the way, right? And then it trains us in righteousness. What's, what's training? It, it, it's working it into our lives. It's making it, making it muscle memory, right? Training in righteousness to keep in the way. The, the, the scripture is good for all of those purposes in our life. And I want to tell you, point out to you this morning that 50% of that description is affirming. It teaches us this is the way. It confirms in training we're walking in it. But 50% of it is confrontive. 50% of it is reproof, this ain't the way, and correction, that's the way back to the way. Right? Isn't that an interesting balance? 50% affirmative, 50% corrective or confrontive, and that's the nature of Scripture according to Scripture. So when Scripture teaches us, that's great insight, that's good, that's fun. When Scripture trains us, it affirms us and says we're on the right way, that feels good. But how many of you feel good when reproved or corrected? I think we're all in that same boat together. But it's the nature of God's Word to do that 50-50 dance. God cares not only that we walk in the way, but when we stray from it, we won't continue in our error. Interpretation prioritizes scriptural authority. We don't really give the Bible authority if we only give it the power to affirm us. That's the point I wanted to make. To really give the word authority means to also give it authority when it reproves or corrects us. Scriptural authority means that uh, interpretation must honor it. Uh, There was a theologian, famous Methodist theologian called Albert uh, um, Outler. And Outler came up with this uh, ingenious kind of... uh, model of interpretation that Methodists seem to have just seized. Uh, And you can remember it by this acronym. This is how I cheated on the tests in seminary. R-E-S-T. Okay? And if you spell it, it means reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. Reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. Now, which of those fingers is the longest? Scripture. Scripture. Now, now what sometimes we make a mistake of is putting Scripture on the same level as reason, experience, and the traditions of others that have thought something about Christianity. But Outler never said it was an equilateral. He said it was a quadrilateral, right? But not an equilateral. Because if you look at reason, and human experience, and human tradition, all those have something very much in common. Humanness. 
right? And, and we have to recognize that the wisdom of God trumps the wisdom of men. And for that reason, revelation, biblical revelation, has to be held above all those other sieves of interpretation when we are trying to consider what is the right way to go, the right way to live, right? Does that make sense? You just got a semester's worth of theology. And I'm convinced some of my professors didn't get it. Uh, ought to charge for that. That is... That is such good stuff, but, but so terribly important. If we forget that, then our experience, our reason, and the traditions of men become something, all of which can drown out the voice of God with the voices of men. Does that make sense? We, we understand and we honor the authority of Scripture for all those reasons, but mostly because... Jesus, who is our Lord, affirmed the authority of Scripture. Are you aware that he quotes the Scripture, which would have been the Old Testament Scripture, because the New Testament Scripture, his own words and the uh, writings of the apostles were, were yet to write at that time. They would be recorded. And Jesus did say that we should build our houses upon his words as a rock instead of building our houses as lives upon sand. So, so when Jesus was talking about it, he mentioned it 78 times, he quotes it. He quotes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. All of those he quotes somewhere in the Gospels. And he may have quoted more than that. That's just how many of his disciples could remember. But it makes a point in Scripture that even our Lord honored the Scriptures. When He was tempted in the wilderness, He said, it is written. When He was tried by the cross, He quoted the Psalms. When He was announcing His purpose, He said, today in your hearing, the Scripture has been fulfilled as He read Isaiah in the temple. The basis of His message, according to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount is not that he would somehow abolish the law, but that he would fulfill the law. The Jews talked of the law and the prophets as being their label for all of Scripture. He went on to say that not a jot nor a tittle, not a, not a, that, that's Hebrew markings of, you know, not a uh, dotted I or an apostrophe will pass away until the fullness of time. He saw it as sacred. It was the basis of his message. And even though he himself was the Word, and he pointed that out clearly, John tells it. And then in John 5, 35, he says, You Pharisees, you, you, you look for the, for the Scriptures for truth, though truth, basically saying, though truth stands before you, but all those Scriptures point to me, and you're missing it. Right? So think about this. Jesus, who John says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word that he's talking about is Jesus Christ himself. He, he, he is that ultimate depiction of God. Hebrew says God has talked to us as many times in different ways. The Spirit has talked to us through the prophets up through the ages. But now he's talked to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation the exact representation of God's nature. So Jesus, the Word, the living incarnate Word, never contradicted the written Word. He, he honored it to the letter, and He explained further its spirit. When others had misinterpreted truth wrongly, he would say, you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And he would correct them. Jesus, the Word of God, nevertheless subjected himself, submitted himself to living in accordance with the Word as we know it. The Word that we still have. The Word lived consistently with this Word. 
That to me is a powerful argument that we might ought to consider it. When he walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, though they didn't recognize him as first, and they said, did our hearts not burn within us as he walked with us on the way? They then recognized it was Jesus all along, and Jesus had been explaining to them how all of Scripture pointed to himself. But even though all of Scripture points to Jesus, Jesus nevertheless honors the Scripture as the Word of God. I'm not as wise as Jesus. But I want to learn from him. I've heard the story of a, of a young pastor who was struggling in seminary with some of the things that he was hearing. The God is dead movement was going on then. Textual criticism was chewing apart the wor- word. And uh, the Bible was being doubted in, in high scholarly places and he himself started having questions that he couldn't find the answer to. Professors are really good at that in seminary, asking questions that dismantle your faith. Wish, I wish they could be as good with answers that rebuild it. But at the heart of this young pastor's dilemma was whether or not he could trust the Bible. And then in his memoir, he says, One moonlit night, I went for a walk in the woods, pondering the questions swirling in my head. Dropping to my knees there in the woods, I opened the Bible at random on a tree stump in front of me. I could not even read what it said in the shadowy moonlight. I could only stutter into a prayer. The exact wording of my prayer is beyond my recall, but it must have echoed my thoughts. Oh, God. There are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions. And then this young preacher made a commitment that would ever mark his life. But Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. And reflecting on that moment later, he said, when I got up from my knees, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed. In my heart and in my mind, I knew a spiritual battle had been fought and won, Throughout his subsequent ministry, people would comment on the conviction and authority with which this preacher preached. When I was nine years old, I heard that preacher preach, and I gave my heart to Christ. Little did I know then that the great power and clarity and conviction with which he preached that the Holy Spirit honored that was a part of that decision that night to trust God's Word as the Word of God was what was now uh, reaping benefits and having its echo effect in, in my own life. All from this core conviction that the Bible rules. And if it's 50% confrontive and 50% affirming in in its function, then then it's rightly confronting at times. There are times when the wisdom of God and the right in God's eyes is completely counterintuitive to what you and I feel or would come up with. The the Word says that it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, if you can admit it, I bet the first time you heard that, you went, huh? 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 There's times when only because it's the Word do I have enough momentum to believe it still. There are times when the Lord's wisdom is higher than mine, that it contradicts things that make plain sense to me, that that forgiveness is wiser than revenge. Think through that one. There have been times when I've doubted that, haven't you? 
And yet the Word of God makes clear our way. There are times when, you know, the, the Scripture says that the way to a really rich uh, sexual life is fidelity. Not fooling around. You buy that? Do you really? So it is in the Word. Sometimes it's completely counterintuitive. Every now and then the Scriptures slap us in the face and say, this ain't the way. And, and most of us at one point in our life or another have been at a place where we heard the Word said, this ain't the way. And we thought, hmm, I can manage it. Huh? Oh, don't look at me. I, yeah. Let me just say, dating life. Can we start there? Some of you are starting to blush. I won't, I won't push that one. God calls us to standards and to ways that sometimes are, are not intuitively our own. He, he calls us out of a certain bent, not because, because he's trying to straighten us out. We are broken, bent people. Do we expect anything less? The, the Word of God then becomes a compass to our righteousness. It, it helps us when things are uh, uh, intuitively not our grasp. So let, me, let me put it this way. The, the Bible is a compass because it tells us what to turn away from and what to turn towards. To turn away from sin and to turn our life towards God. That informs our, our baptism and our decision for Christ and informs every moment after that and our sanctification as we walk with Him. It describes for us what we turn from and what we turn towards. Do you remember what I said we turn from? Sin. What defines that? This does. We turn towards God. What reveals God? This does. This, this becomes the compass in our orientation even when our own intuitive wisdom would trick us, would take us down a path that, though it's a blind spot to us, it would, it would end in our destruction. Romans 1, as it talks about turning away from God and turning towards sinfulness, includes uh, all kinds of things in that description. But there, as it does in many other places in Scripture, and consistently throughout Scripture, out of a love for people, says that many sexual practices are not the way. That they end in brokenness. And one of those that it's absolutely consistent about, biblically, every time it's mentioned, is that homosexuality, the living out of that, is sinful. It's something to turn away from as we turn towards God and open up to His way, whatever that mysterious way may be. Now, at that point that you turn from something like that or from any of our sin, it may not make intuitive sense to you at that moment that that is going to work out well. I do not have the intellect or the wisdom to chart a path from some courses of sin to some courses of redemption and glory. I am not that smart. But I would love you less to say, just go the heck on your way. I don't trust my judgment that much. you know why? Because the Word says, this is something you turn from. This is something you turn towards. And if you read the Word long enough, you'll find a bunch of things that you need to turn from and turn towards as much as anybody else. Right now in our denomination, the question of how we live redemptively with one another in the body of Christ, what will define that which we turn away from and that which we turn towards, is splitting our denomination at this point. It, it is diverging in our midst. And we must understand the core convictions by which we discern that path. And that's just one of the reasons I share that this morning. It is a denominational concern. You know what a bigger concern for me is? The bigger concern for me is we are a body of Christ that hopefully is a safe place for any sinner to land. Any sinner. And all of us sin. And all of us are being redeemed. And all of us are people in progress. 
But I'm here to tell you, if, if, if you are not sensitive to the Scripture and you point me in a direction that's intuitively right to you, but it's not the way of the Lord, you are pointing me towards destruction. I don't need that. I can't survive in a church like that. I learned that the only way that sanctification has traction in my own life is not working it out alone in hiding, but bringing my sin to a bunch of brothers and sisters, particularly in this case brothers, that were able to confront me with the Word of God and stand with me as I walked it out, even though I didn't know which way it was going or what the fruits of it would be. At the time, it felt like death. But had they not lovingly spoken the truth in my life, I am convinced my life would be shipwrecked now. And so I'm not prescribing for someone else something that I myself don't need. I do not trust what is between these ears. (laughs) It's gotten me in trouble too many times. All those times I thought I was wiser. (laughs) You know, time has a way of revealing things. And I'm still learning. It's not that I'm all wise now. It's that I've just become aware of how stupid I am. And that's a great discovery. It helps me not trust myself, but trust God's word to be my compass. To show me what to turn from and what to turn towards. And I need the restoration of the body to walk with me in that because my natural inclination will always be to veer off that path of righteousness that Jesus walked and that Jesus is, but is so often not intuitively what my flesh would choose. In fact, the Scriptures tell us very clearly that we're to have a certain kind of attitude. Yes, we're to speak the truth in love, but Galatians takes it even a little farther. If you'd turn there with me. This is so good. This part right here, brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, this is Galatians 6, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens when... When another does not have the strength to turn, the strength to walk, will you stand with them? For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to some other that he's reforming. For each one shall bear his own load. And and let, I added, that was Buskirk paraphrase. For each one shall bear his own load, and let the one who has taught the word of God share all things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this too also he will reap. There are consequences to our actions. This passage says that our attitude towards one another when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling for righteousness, is one of gentleness. Uh, one where we understand ourselves to be no less susceptible to sin. We're not holier than thou. One that is bearing with one another, bearing together. One that is humble. One that is self-examining. One that does not mock God. But too often times, our attitude as Christians towards those with sins that we don't particularly struggle with has not been gentleness. It's been harshness. It's not been saying that we ourselves are susceptible to sin. It's been as if they were condemned in sin. Rather than bearing with one another, we've shunned. Rather than being humble, we've been arrogant. Rather than being self-examining, we've pointed the finger in fault. And when we've done that, we've not represented the heart of God. God forgive us. Biblical sexuality, let me just say right here now, it's a challenge to all of us, or at least all of us that I know, 
And if, if this is something in which you say that you don't struggle at all, let me just say, I'm going to find it hard to trust you about other things as well. Maybe this is not your besetting sin, but, but all of us have a bent towards our own selfishness. All of us. It's a challenge to us all. Some have summarized the teaching of Scripture in this way, that it's celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage. Celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but who has transgressed? In, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, uh, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Not, uh, here, Inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Is that about salvation in heaven? I, I think not. Inheriting the kingdom of God almost uh, also has the effect of saying you're not living the kind of life now that God can bless the way you're living it. Inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Isn't that interesting? That gender confusion was not... A new thing. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Have I gotten to you yet? This is an inclusive list, not an exclusive list. This is talking about the ways that that all of us are, are tempted to live beneath our privileges, children of God. It's a challenge to all of us to live a life that's holy. Celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage is just the standard when it comes to sexual sins. But there's so many other sins there as if Paul was trying to say, and if that's not what you struggle with, let me throw a few more in there. Most of us have fallen short. If not in this way, then in others. Some of us may see ourselves there as fornicators. Fornicators. Sex outside of uh, of marriage. Fornicators, porn, 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 pornography. It's all related. Adulterers. How how about these others? Idolaters, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. that's, That's not the life that God is wanting to bless. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Though it's a challenge to us all to live a holy life, there's grace for us all. Look at, this. Look at the verse that follows, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified by something you've done or something you've earned. No, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. God did what you could not do. The youth were studying in Romans 8 this morning. There's a grace for us all. Washed. Sanctified. Justified. There's a hope for us all. Such were some of you. That if we trust His Word, that that is the direction, and we trust His Spirit to strengthen us in that direction, then there is a redemptive work that God does in the lives that trust Him with that. I can't unpack that for everyone. I'm not even sure I know all the details. But those of us who are walking it out can help one another. Whatever our besetting sin is, shouldn't we be those that are partners with one another in finding that blessed life that turns us away from death and turns us towards life? It's a grace for all. It's a hope for all. Such were some of you. It seems to me that here, the Corinthian church, Paul is recognized as a group of believers where there was enough grace for each other, enough to be a place that was safe to heal 
and not to hide. God, help us be that safe place. You see, our challenge as Christians is to do both of those things at the same time, which is not an easy task, which is why both conservative and liberal churches shy away from it. At the same time, to love someone with the love of God, and at the same time, to love someone with the love of God. The love that finds us, all of us, right where we are and loves us as children of this world, children of God, children becoming more children of God as we trust His Spirit to guide and shape our lives. God, help us be that kind of church. Help us not just to believe right, but to behave right, to do right. And to do by, right by one another and by you. I don't want to stop short of that. Jesus, give us the power to live that out. And the only way we will ever do that is if we trust the who behind the what that Scripture says. If we trust the who behind the what. I want to finish the rest of that story. That, that young preacher that we talked about earlier on. Well, well let me just say that one, one of his friends was a guy named Chuck Templeton. Dad, you were right. It was Chuck. Charles, actually. Charles Templeton. He was someone that he, he went to seminary with, and he was one of his buddies. And in those days that he was struggling with the intellectual side of faith, and he had that walk in the woods and, and dedicated his heart to God, he, his friend took the other path. And Lee Strobel not long ago interviewed Chuck Templeton, and, and he actually uh, uh, captured, uh, captured the conversation But my friend, I'm simply not possible, it's simply not possible any longer to believe the Bible. For instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days or a few thousand years ago. It's evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable scientific fact. I don't accept that, our young preacher said. And there are reputable, reputable scholars who don't accept that. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges, most of them, he said, yes. But that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the Word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says and the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results Wiser men than you or I have been arguing these kinds of questions for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of every theological dispute. So I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word by faith. He was talking about that conversation he had with God in the woods that night. But Charles protests with his seminary buddy. He says, but you can't do that. You can't dare stop thinking. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. And I haven't stopped thinking. Lee Strobel, as he interviewed him, said that Templeton went on to say, and Templeton went on to write books about why he had rejected the Christian faith and was an agnostic, just so you know the end of his story. Not only did his ministry come apart, but his life fell apart as well. But he asked them this, now in, in a nursing home in his 80s, how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like that was the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke, Templeton said. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and instant edge, now took on a melancholy, even reflective tone. His guard seemed to be coming down. He spoke in an unhurried pace, almost 
why can't I say that word? Almost nostalgically. Carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who's ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken back. You, you sound like you really care about Jesus. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and, and, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He, he constigated pe castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way. But they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus, Jesus is... Ah, oh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most, he stopped and starting again. In my view, he said, he's the most important human being who's ever existed. Notice what he didn't say. He never said Jesus is Lord. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if... If I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Bill, my... Build your life on my words and you will be building it upon a rock. Build your life on anything else and you're building your house upon sand. It might feel good. It might be easy to fit. It might be warm in the afternoons. It might be easy to level and start from where you are. But you're not building upon a rock. Jesus was wanting to say, be careful. Be careful. You know, you, a parent can... Uh, caution a child as they as they play imagine a child playing near the wood pile you know and it it's a perfect place to play it it you can climb up it you can kick stuff off of it there's things to beat it's wonderful a wood pile but the child doesn't realize what the parent realizes that that wood pile is also a nest for snakes and i don't know about you but when when i was a kid I became aware of things that were in my blind spot by the tone of my parents' voice. <laughs> Honey, don't do that was not a big deal. Chris! <laughs> right? The Lord warns us against sin, and I think sometimes He warns us against sins that are most dangerous with a little more urgency. And we ignore that urgency at our own peril. Do we trust the who behind the what? This is his testimony after years of having chosen to believe the Bible. And oh, who was that young preacher who determined that night in the woods to rely on the scriptures? Just the man that God would use to preach the gospel to more people than anyone else in history. His name was Billy Graham. 
and his commitment to the scriptures endured throughout his life, a fact to which he testified in the book he authored as his legacy for Christian living. It's called The Journey and published in his late 80s. So from the perspective of looking back on his life, he says there and reflecting on his moment of commitment to the scriptures so many years earlier, he wrote these uncompromising words, especially significant to me, Billy Graham writes, was Jesus' own view of Scripture. He not only quoted it frequently, but he accepted it as the Word of God. He also told his disciples, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, rendered in some Bible translations as a jot and a tittle, referring to the markings in the Hebrew alphabet, will will by any means disappear from the Word, from the law. Billy Graham asked this question, shouldn't I have the same view of Scripture as my Lord? The who, behind the what. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, has a word for this corrective role of the word in our lives, this rebuking at times and correcting at times. He calls it discipline. Because he sees it as the act of a loving father in our lives. The father's discipline he talks about. Listen listen to this. This is... uh, Someone take a second. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline... Or of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons at all. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The who behind the what is critical. Andy Stanley tells the story of what happened in his backyard with his young son. There, there in North Georgia, he, he has a, a retainer wall in the backyard. And if, as those retainer walls go, usually they start out, you know, kind of at ground level, and they get higher and higher and higher and higher. And his son was playing at the retainer wall, and he was jumping into his father's arms. He started at about waist level and jumped to his dad, ran around and went to the other side and thought, well, that worked out pretty well. He went up a couple of more feet and jumped to his father's arms. That worked out well. He kept going up and going up until he got to the highest place on the wall. And as he got to the highest place on the wall, he looked down and the ground seemed so far away. It looked like that if he jumped, it would just crush him. It looked like death he was staring in the face. And Andy Stanley said, I looked up at my son and I recognized that struggle in his eyes. It was the difficulty of a leap of faith. But I said, son, don't look at the ground. Don't look at the ground. And he looked up into his father's eyes. And at that moment, he, he jumped from the wall and into his father's arms. And he said, as far as a father is concerned, the height of the leap is equivalent to the delight in the heart. In the father's arms, the more we trust him, the greater the leap The greater we're saying, God, I don't understand this. I'm not sure how this is going to work. This looks like death that I'm staring in the face. I don't know if I can do without this pet sin in my life. I don't know if I can live without the pornography. I don't know if I can live without the mistress. I don't know if I can live without the booze. But the height of the wall shows the greatness of the trust and the love. And all of us in many times in our life are going to have to take that leap of faith. This morning I'm asking you, are you willing to take the same leap of faith that Billy Graham did? It worked out pretty well for him. 
Are you willing to be honest with all your doubts and, and never quit thinking, always looking for intellectual explanations for the hope that's set within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, sharing that with others? That, that, that's who we are as Christians. We don't check our minds at the door. Ours is not a leap into the darkness. It's a leap into the light. There are good reasons for believing that this Bible, the most attested work of all antiquity, re- is reliable. I wish, I wish I could go into all that, but it all comes back to this simple choice, really. After you've said Jesus is Lord, will you say, in my life, the Bible rules? And if you will, I invite you to come to the hymn, the who behind the what. Come to this altar trusting him. And he will be faithful to his word. And to anyone who trusts him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord God, I pray this morning that your truth would be heard. That it would become a rock that's a foundation for us for living. That it will become a a measure of seeking compassion and partnership in this redemptive sanctifying walk towards holiness that all of us struggle with and we pray god that we would be the kind of church that holds those truths in tension that your redemptive work that began in christ that was in the early church would continue in us until that day that we meet you face to face with all those others that have walked with us into your wonderful embrace we ask it in the name of our lord our Savior, Jesus Christ. Save our hearts now, Lord God, as we take this leap of faith. We thank you that between us and death are always your intervening arms. Catch us, Lord God. Help us to know your playful, loving embrace as we trust you fully and bow to your word. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 If this morning...